Hello, and welcome to Fraud Eat Strategy. This is the second half of our 30-episode recap in which we explore the different topics and highlights of the episodes of the first 30 episodes of the podcast series. Thank you again for joining. So we also took a hard look at cross-border transactions. They really require careful attention to the potential for success or liability under the FCPA. So even if an acquirer successfully avoids success or liability, it's important to carefully consider and quantify the compliance and legal costs that target company may need to incur to resolve FCPA issues identified in the course of the due diligence, and that you know those costs should be factored into the purchase price. If the target doesn't have a meaningful anti-corruption program, that doesn't relieve you of your obligation to assess the potential for corruption risk and integrate them into your anti-bribery and corruption compliance program with a sense of urgency. So a number of episodes were on the subject of investigations and investigative techniques. So investigators and attorneys are two professions that are best practiced in person. And yet we've all had to revert to using video conferencing for things like witness interviews, depositions, and hearings, and even trial proceedings. This has invigorated debates about the use of body language and other physical cues to detect deception or if someone is being coached off screen. It has also caused us to examine just how reliable the use of body language is to determine if someone's being deceptive. So I reached out to Michael Brett Hood. Brett is a former FBI special agent and an expert on witness interviews. I spoke to him about remote witness interviews and how to make the best of a bad situation you know, by using time-tested interrogation techniques. There have been numerous academic studies that have concluded that there's no single reliable body language indicator of deception. Other studies went further. They concluded that investigators and litigators are very good at detecting what they classify as obvious liars, but not very good at detecting what they termed honest liars. And honest liars are people who consciously make eye contact, greet you with a firm handshake, exhibit confidence in other behaviors that most of us associate with people who are truthful. These studies have revealed that honest liars are only detected 20% of the time. Further muddying the waters is the concept of the nervous truth teller. This is when someone who is being honest but exhibits the telltale signs of being particularly nervous, they're sweating, they're breaking eye contact, they're fidgeting. This could lead investigators to mistakenly construe these as indicators of deception when in fact the interviewees are just nervous. Overall, according to the body of research, Use of body language to detect deception is only 52 to 53% of the time reliable. That being said, using it in conjunction with other proven interviewing techniques can be very helpful in the course of your investigation. So Brett advocating for using silence as an interviewing technique. In our culture, long pauses in a conversation causes us to feel uncomfortable. This puts the witness at a disadvantage, and the long pauses in the conversation can cause a person who's not being honest to wonder if the interviewer is doubting what they're saying. And that can lead them to nervously volunteer additional detail to their answer, sometimes undermining or maybe even contradicting what was previously stated. Brett also suggested a few other things, including having two people on the interview you know, someone acting as lead and someone who is primarily focusing on taking notes. This enables the lead interviewer to fully engage with the witness, make eye contact, listen intently, and physically observing them and their body language 
as opposed to sort of breaking eye contact and interrupting the flow of the interview by stopping to write things down. So in police procedural TV shows and movies, witness interviews are often depict, you know, shouting and use of intimidation and threats. In actuality, much of what is taught in interviewing and interrogation schools focuses on finding common ground with the interview subject and building a rapport before the substantive questioning happens. In some instances, that's going to be repugnant to the investigators, but nevertheless, that rapport building is very important. While building a rapport on a Zoom call isn't quite the same as an in-person interview, a lot of the same proven techniques are applicable. Repeating slang words or phrases or restating something that was said, even though it might be slanted or inaccurate, as a segue into a question conveys that the interviewer is listening and makes the witness feel that there's validity to what they're saying. And while in-person interviews still have the edge from an efficacy perspective, using body language, active listening skills, two interviewers with a designated note taker, and other proven interviewing techniques can be a very effective alternative. So we had an episode, and for that matter, also a webinar on financial investigations units who are really the unsung heroes inside of banks and brokerages. Their job is to protect institutions and their customers from the things that go bump in the night. Most financial services companies above a certain size have one or more FIUs to investigate the various threats against the institution or its customers. I was joined for this episode by Alan Love from TD Bank, Alex Segaro from Raymond James, and FTI's own Andrew Rossini, who has extensive financial services investigative experience himself. So we discussed FIUs, their mission, challenges, and how to go about the process of keeping their organizations and clients safe. FIUs have the same suspicious activity reporting filing obligations as their anti-money laundering and sanctions counterparts. There are a variety of activities that an institution has to monitor and investigate, not just money laundering or sanctions. A SAR will contain important information needed by law enforcement and the government agencies who rely on this intelligence. SARs are in fact sent to a part of the U.S. Department of Treasury called the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, FinCEN, the U.S. government's national intelligence unit. FinCEN not only acts as a clearinghouse and data repository to share information with U.S. law enforcement agency, it also analyzes the huge volumes of SAR data that it receives and shares those results to those analyses publicly to then assist financial institutions and other interested parties to better understand the threats currently being faced by institutions, by things like money laundering and other financial crimes, trends, transactional patterns, and typologies, which then better equips compliance officers to identify and counter financial crime. FIUs are an essential part of a financial institution's ability to operate in compliance with any money laundering and financial crime regulations. More importantly, though, they sit at the intersection between bank leadership, line personnel, customers, and law enforcement in safeguarding the institution and its customers from would-be criminals. So in 2020 and, and continuing into 2021, the term crisis communication is really almost seems redundant. We're bombarded every day with information about the pandemic death toll and infection rates, the largest cyber attack in history, the financial crisis, efforts to overturn a presidential election, and an attack on the U.S. Capitol while Congress is in session. Much of crisis management planning and communications is really thinking through various scenarios 
of things that could happen and formulating a plan for each. Investigators, outside counsel, litigation consultants, and compliance advisors regularly meet people while they are staring down the barrel of a crisis that is already playing out in the news or is on the verge of doing so. I think we've all witnessed firsthand how things can go from bad to worse when a company or individual makes public statements hastily without first gathering the facts. Issuing denials, betraying the confidentiality of whistleblowers, appearing to obfuscate or be tone deaf, or avoiding questions can shift the focus away from the allegations themselves and make the company's refusal to acknowledge or take ownership of the issue the bigger story. Handled poorly, crises can cause long-lasting damage to a company's reputation and share value. On the other hand, if handled well, a crisis can really be an opportunity for a company's management team to demonstrate their mettle and character to investors, customers, and employees. So on this episode about the interrelationship between major investigations and crisis communications, I spoke with Skadden Arps partner, Pat Fitzgerald, who has presided over many major investigations, both in his time in government and since, and FTI Consulting Senior Managing Director, Rachel Rosenblatt, who is an expert in crisis communications. And we talked about the interrelationship between major investigations and crisis communications. And one of the key things to know about crisis communications is that a company or an executive's reputation is really made or broken on how they react to the crisis, not the crisis itself. Knowing this, it's important to plan for all the possible scenarios that could surround a crisis becoming public while also being mindful that not everything's gonna become public or catch the interest of the media. High profile investigations and crisis communications are inextricably linked. The time to start thinking about them is when your hair is not on fire. Thinking through the various negative events that could occur and impact the organization and then reasoning through how the company would approach the investigation and discuss it publicly is really the gold standard. It better positions the organization to respond efficiently and avoid the organization's potential mishandling of the crisis from becoming the story. We talked also with some guests about cross-border investigations. In organizations with a strong ethical culture, cross-border investigations tend to go a little easier than in dysfunctional organizations. Whether your organization is amongst the world's most ethical or riddled with dysfunction, cross-border investigations are challenging either way, and they happen to both categories of organization. Global organizations are really a microcosm of the countries and cultures in which they operate. So understanding customs, language, business practice, and cultural norms is an essential part of conducting effective investigations. Further amplifying the challenge is that in many parts of the world, the business practices and cultural norms tacitly endorse bribery and corruption and other financial and property crimes. I spoke with two experts in cross-border investigations for this episode. Cummins, Inc.'s Senior Director of Ethics and Compliance, Fernanda Baraldi, who has lots of international investigative experience, and FTI Consulting Managing Director, Yulia Maximenko, who herself has extensive experience, much of it in Eastern Europe. So in the forensic accounting world, there's a little-known area commonly referred to as shadow investigations. A shadow investigation is when an accounting firm oversees an internal investigation being performed by outside counsel and their forensic investigations counterparts. The primary objective of a shadow investigation is to ensure that the investigative scope is likely to provide sufficient information for the audit partner to comfortably sign off 
on the audited financial statements. We had an, an episode exploring the shadow investigations with Cleary Gottlieb litigation partner, Lisa Vicenz, and FTI Consulting Senior Managing Director and Forensic Accountant, Mark Grover, uh, both of whom have worked on investigations that have been shadowed by accounting firms, as have I. So, you know, since the passage of Sarbanes-Oxley 20 years ago, uh, shadow investigations have been running in parallel to many investigations involving publicly traded companies. Uh, most often, they take place when an internal investigation has the potential to impact and you know, potentially even be material to the company's audited financial statements. And typically the audit firm will involve their forensic practice and ask them to you know, literally shadow the forensic accounting and investigative procedures to make sure that they're scoped properly and are you know, sort of likely to yield enough information to allow the audit partner to sign off. Shadow investigations are, are necessary and they're every bit as important to the client as the investigation itself. Uh, shadow investigators and outside investigative teams of attorneys and forensic accountants each play an equally important role. Investigations must be independent, thorough, and scoped in proportion to the allegations at hand, and it needs to expose all the evidence needed by management, regulators, and law enforcement. At the same time, auditors must have confidence that the investigation was appropriate, sufficient, and likely to uncover the relevant facts. The, the auditors also need to have a clear understanding of any impact the investigation may have on the financial statements and whether the integrity of management is at issue, always a concern. You know, investigations happen. Shadow investigations enable them to happen in full view of the auditors and ultimately the investing public. So another interesting area that we covered in investigations is the role that psychology plays in investigations. Behavioral science profiling has proven to be an invaluable law enforcement tool in their ability to bring serial killers, terrorists, and other violent offenders to justice. And yet the use of psychological techniques in the study of white collar crime hasn't garnered nearly the same amount of attention despite the potentially devastating financial consequences of a white collar crime. White collar criminals are generally disliked, and even the term suggests images of elitism, entitlement, home confinement, and country club prisons. White collar criminals are not a better class of criminal, uh, nor are they more deserving of leniency than other criminal offenders. They're just wired differently. And understanding that fact can better position us to help safeguard organizations and individuals from the types of crimes that white collar criminals commit. So on the subject, I spoke with two people who have studied white collar criminals extensively. Sullivan and Cromwell partner, Nick Borton, and Harvard Business School professor and best-selling author, Eugene Soltis. Part of what separates white collar criminals is their detachment and lack of awareness of the negative consequences that their crimes have on their victims. For example, insider trading. In most cases, the victims of insider trading are not readily identifiable. Some would say insider trading undermines the integrity of the market. But that lack of a tangible victim doesn't have the same visceral feeling of wrongdoing as other types of crime. And what's even more interesting in most white-collar crimes is when the person is engaged in a misconduct, 
what they're doing may not feel negative to them at the time. When someone is trying to make their firm's financial statements appear better than the company's true financial condition to get them through a difficult time and protect the stock's value, they likely see themselves in somewhat heroic terms. It's only with time when those negative consequences and feelings are revealed. Another thing that sets most white-collar criminals apart is that they often don't realize they're committing a crime until they reach the point of no return. They are physically and emotionally detached from their victims. And as a result, the psychological cues that humans have evolved to have when they are causing injury are much more subdued in the case of the white-collar criminal if they're even triggered at all. So in many ways, we're all susceptible to fall prey to what a noted criminologist Donald Cressy describes in the fraud triangle, that given enough pressure exerted on us and the right opportunity and surround ourselves with people who would tell us that our rationalizations are wrongheaded and harmful, we each could end up the subject of our own white-collar crime case study. Investigations do not necessarily have to be across purposes with an organization's culture and morale. That said, it's imperative to plan and conduct investigations that strike a balance between the need to bottom out the allegations at hand, but doing so without hurting morale and organizational culture. Not all organizations can claim to have a strong ethical culture. In fact, many do not. But they all need internal investigations sooner or later. Improper conduct tends to be far more prevalent in organizations that don't have a strong foundation of ethics. Conducting investigations in these organizations can be a little more challenging since employees are far less likely to trust that the investigation will be conducted fairly, that the persons responsible for the improper conduct, particularly if they're senior, will be held accountable, and most importantly, that cooperation on the part of individual employees will not result in them being retaliated against. Strangely enough, when the ethical culture in an organization isn't strong, employees tend to be more trusting of outside investigators than they are their own colleagues. Outside investigators are often viewed as independent, disinterested parties who are far less likely to be swayed by internal politics or hierarchical pressures. Individuals who are construed to be cooperating are unlikely described internally in heroic terms, quite the opposite. They may be shunned, retaliated against, threatened, and even assaulted. Investigators need to be mindful of these cultural dynamics and plan their investigations accordingly. So an investigation of cross-border allegations, in order for it to be effective, it really starts with a plan. And the plan both needs to take into consideration the allegations at hand and what needs to be done to confirm or refute what's been alleged or discovered, but it also needs to consider the ethical culture, privacy, state secret strictures and the laws and cultural nuances in the country and in the local subsidiary, and then kind of combine those into a tactical plan of the specific investigative steps to be taken, timing and logistics of each step, and doing it in such a way as to try to cause a minimal disruption to the company itself with an eye toward protecting the identity of witnesses. They can either benefit from the trust the organization has built with its workforce, as a result of their efforts at fostering ethical culture, or serve as the tip of the spear, seeking to root out bad actors and usher in a new organizational ethos. So we also talked about anti-money laundering and sanctions in a number of episodes. The Office of Foreign Assets Control 
OFAC, sanctions regulations and other regulatory regimes that impose restrictions on international trade have always been important tools to protect US foreign policy and national security interests. The use of sanctions has aggressively expanded in recent years and the continuing inclusion of organizations and individuals on OFAC and the Bureau of Industry and Security lists are in the middle of escalating tensions between the US, China, Russia, Venezuela, and other countries. Meanwhile, the US Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, CFIUS, is a previously little known interagency committee of the US government and has been at the center of several scuttled mergers and acquisitions as the US seeks to protect national security interests from all angles. I spoke with sanctions and export controls experts Baruch Weiss, who's a partner at Arnold and Porter, and FTI's own Eric Rudolph, who each offered practical advice on how to handle the increasingly complex area of OFAC and sanctions compliance. So in 2019, the U.S. Department of Treasury published the framework for OFAC compliance commitments, which sets forth five essential components of a sanctions compliance program and 10 root causes of sanctions compliance breakdowns. Companies are well advised to align themselves with this OFAC framework that was published roughly a year ago. The framework details what a compliance program should include and how organizations should go about administering that program. What's important about this guidance is the program shouldn't mirror the framework exactly. Instead, the framework sets forth clear expectations that each program should be developed only after the company has performed a meaningful risk assessment. With the release of this document, OFAC is delineating what they expect to see in a sanctions compliance program. OFAC looks at a program through a critical lens, examines the adequacy of that program against the framework, and then weighs what actions to take against the company. CFIUS has figured prominently in the scuttling of some major acquisitions in the past few years. A couple of years ago, Congress passed legislation that made certain classes of acquisitions to be submitted to CFIUS for review prior to their going forward. The regulations were modified this past October, tying CFIUS to the manufacture and export of goods, which are governed by the U.S. Department of Commerce, Business, and Industry Security lists, bringing those companies into the mandatory jurisdiction of CFIUS. If any of the products they manufacture have potential national security implications, they must ensure that they're classified as such and any buyers have been screened to ensure none are restricted parties. This is critically important. And lastly, companies considering a sale to a foreign buyer, they need to understand whether the sale has the potential to have national security implications. And if there's any doubt, they should consider conferring with CFIUS before moving forward or really risk having to unwind the transaction after the fact, which is pretty expensive. So there are three primary laundering methods that transnational criminal and terrorist organizations utilize to launder the proceeds of illegal activity and finance terrorism. But of the three, trade-based money laundering is arguably the most challenging. Most people associate money laundering with the misuse of financial institutions or the bulk movement of hard currency using smuggling techniques as though it was some other form of contraband. But trade-based money laundering works differently. In simplest terms, trade-based money laundering involves disguising the proceeds of crime using trade transactions to obscure their illegal origin. Almost any product, service, or sector can be used for that purpose. 
precious metals, household appliances, really anything. I was joined for this episode by White and Case White Collar Crime partner, Jonah Anderson, and research fellow at the UK think tank, the Royal United Services Institute, Anton Moisienko. So trade-based money laundering is very difficult to detect. And once the illicit proceeds have been converted into products for export, there's a good chance that it'll never be detected from that point on. This is because the goods purchased with illegal proceeds are largely indistinguishable from goods purchased legitimately. For the most part, trade-based money laundering detection rises and falls on whether the purchase of the goods with illicit proceeds triggers any alarms or red flags. Drug trafficking organization and professional money launderers have long used import-export companies as part of their money laundering infrastructure. As is often the case, financial institutions are the ones that are in the best possible position to flag suspicious transactions surrounding the purchase of goods and the furtherance of trade-based money laundering. The biggest challenge facing trade-based money launderers is at the point of placement. Trade-based money laundering is the most challenging and elegant form of money laundering. It's simply the purchase, exportation, and sale of goods in a country where there's consumer demand for those goods. To ensure the ability to convert products into liquid cash, they just need to be sold at or slightly below the market value for those products. Once the goods have been sold, the proceeds simply need to be transferred to where the head of the snake is located. Detecting trade-based money laundering is difficult, but not impossible. The best way to detect it is through a combination of the vigilance of financial institutions and law enforcement efforts at countering narcotics trafficking, illegal weapon sales, human trafficking, and other income-producing crimes, and then carrying those investigations forward to the point of identifying and dismantling the money laundering infrastructure. So there have been a lot of changes to the law recently. On July 27, 2020, the U.S. Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations released a report entitled The Art Industry and U.S. Policies That Undermine Sanctions, the result of a two-year investigation into the art industry and how billions of dollars, much of it of unknown origin, is used to purchase fine art. On October 30, 2020, OFAC issued an advisory cautioning art dealers, auction houses, and private collectors about sanctions risks related to the purchase and sale of fine art. Public disclosure surrounding the recent investigation of the embezzlement of billions of dollars from the Malaysian Sovereign Wealth Fund, 1MDB, revealed that some of the embezzled money was used to acquire a Vincent van Gogh drawing and two Claude Monet paintings, which in the aggregate were worth $137 million. I spoke with Cobra and Kim partner Robin Rathmel on how the fine art world is starting to look like maybe it's the next anti-money laundering battlefield. High net worth individuals need to take certain proactive steps to avoid being lumped together with Yakuza crime bosses and kleptocrats, particularly in the aftermath of the next Panama Papers type scandal. We live in a time when extreme wealth creates suspicion. The strongest defense for a high net worth individual who's concerned about being stigmatized and lumped in with transnational organized crime figures is to take the proactive step of working with their legal counsel and other advisors to undertake something called a clean funds analysis. 
Now, these serve two purposes. The first is to enable high net worth individuals to structure their assets in, in the way that they want. But in order to do so, advisors, financial institutions, lenders, and other parties, they, they want to know that the funds that they are helping transact are clean so that they can meet their own compliance and know your customer obligations. And second, in the event any allegations are made against the high net worth individual, that same clean funds analysis is very useful as a defensive tool, allowing the high net worth individual to get out in front of any such allegation. So conducting a proactive clean funds analysis and KYC due diligence will ensure that they're mitigating the risks of knowingly or unwittingly assisting in financial crime, while at the same time demonstrating transparency. Despite the fact that there's no law compelling art dealers and collectors to implement anti-money laundering controls, participating in money laundering transactions or transacting with OFAC prohibited persons or entities could result in law enforcement agencies asserting that they are willfully blind to transactions involving dirty money or criminal conduct. So on April 3rd, 2016, information about 214,488 offshore companies established by Panamanian law firm Masak Fonseca was leaked. The leak comprised over 11 million documents and 2.6 terabytes of data, and it opened a rare glimpse into how the wealthy and powerful shelter their income and conceal their wealth. Since the Panama Papers leak, a total of 81 jurisdictions worldwide have passed laws requiring beneficial ownership to be registered with a government authority. Now, the U.S. government has been openly critical of countries who act as money laundering safe havens, and yet we really weren't taking any steps toward transparency ourselves. That changed on January 1st, 2021, when both houses of Congress passed the National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2021, which includes something known as the Corporate Transparency Act. So I was joined by Ballard Spar litigation partner and any money laundering expert, Peter Hardy, and I asked him to explain some of the key components of the Corporate Transparency Act, the CTA. So the CTA requires most corporations and limited liability companies to disclose their actual beneficial owners directly to FinCEN. Sounds simple enough, but I asked Peter to explain how this disclosure to FinCEN was going to work in practice. He said that first we start with a reporting company, which is a U.S. or foreign legal entity created by the filing of a document with a state secretary of state or formed under the law of a foreign country and then registered to do business in the U.S. The key here is that there is a filing with a state or tribal government. That's really step one under the law is termed the reporting company. Regulations still need to be issued by FinCEN clarifying exactly how the process is going to work. And, and FinCEN is really going to have its hands full. There are about 2 million entities formed every year in the U.S. So creating that process and the database to capture, track, and share that information is going to be a mammoth undertaking. And it's not the only thing that has been added to FinCEN's plate of late. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a recap of a later episode. Most states do not require beneficial ownership information to be provided at the time of incorporation. Banks will continue to have their own obligations to identify beneficial owners under the pre-existing customer due diligence rule that came into force in 2018. The CDD rule applies to financial institutions that are taking on companies as customers. And under that rule, the financial institutions have to obtain and maintain beneficial ownership information of their new accounts for their entity customers. 
So one variable that has hampered banks' ability to perform customer due diligence in the past is the unfortunate reality that not everyone tells the truth. So one other important takeaway of the Corporate uh, Transparency Act is this, they have criminalized lying about or concealing beneficial ownership information in providing that information. So interesting things happening with the Corporate Transparency Act. Of even greater importance was the passage of the Anti-Money Laundering Act of 2020. It is the most comprehensive set of reforms to U.S. anti-money laundering laws since the passage of the USA Patriot Act in 2001. So there's a lot to the act, including some very important changes and enhancements that should have an immediate and long-lasting impact on anti-money laundering. So I asked Matt Bybin, who is a Gibson Dunn litigation partner and expert on anti-money laundering, to join me in an episode to discuss AMLA 2020. Uh, Matt reminded me of something and many in anti-money laundering and compliance investigations take for granted is the fact that anti-money laundering legislation has had to adapt to different criminal organizations and the differing ways that they have sought to exploit financial services companies to launder their criminal proceeds. So when the Bank Secrecy Act was first enacted in 1970, the primary focus was to stop the the flow of illegal proceeds related to traditional organized crime and the types of criminal activities they were known for, such as loan sharking, prostitution, extortion, illegal gaming, and labor racketeering. Then in the 80s and 90s, the U.S. law enforcement priorities shifted to the war on drugs, and any money laundering efforts were centered on fighting narcotics trafficking and the laundering of narcotics proceeds. During this time, banks were really you know, kind of pressed into service as though they were confidential informants. The suspicious activity reporting process requires banks to confidentially and surreptitiously report suspicious activity on the part of bank customers or face stringent regulatory penalties for turning a blind eye to fraud and money laundering. This really ushered in the era of bank scrutiny. Then on September 11, 2001, the terrorist acts on that terrible day uh, led to the passage of the USA Patriot Act and another shift in focus toward terrorist financing and even more scrutiny of banks and brokerages. Now banks are being called upon to partner with law enforcement to root out international corruption, but they were also roundly criticized by bank regulators and increasingly by prosecutors who had varying degrees of understanding of you know, some of the realities faced by financial institutions and goalposts that seemed to be moving around in terms of what compliance should look like. Along with this increased regulatory and law enforcement attention came internal investigations, big fines, the involvement of elite law firms and top consultants, which really takes us forward to the present day. Make no mistake, AMLA 2020 is a major addition to that history of adapting money laundering to the current threat. It expands the focus from international terrorism to include domestic terrorism. It's also intent on seeking a better balance with the financial services community provide guidance, hopefully some relief to banks, and big incentives for them to bring their institution into compliance. The statute has also significantly expanded the penalties for Bank Secrecy Act and anti-money laundering violations. The DOJ has been increasingly aggressive in using its anti-money laundering authority to police international corruption and bribery. And you know that's been illustrated in cases we've spoken a little bit about already, 
including 1MDB, FIFA, and the PDVSA prosecutions in Venezuela. There's a new prohibition on knowingly concealing or misrepresenting material facts from a financial institution regarding the ownership or control of assets involved in transactions over a million dollars. The act also makes it a crime to knowingly conceal or misrepresent material facts from or to a financial institution concerning the source of funds. In addition, when Dodd-Frank was first passed following the last financial crisis, it created the SEC whistleblower program, which since its inception has led to more than $2 billion in financial remedies and over $700 million in whistleblower awards. AMLA 2020 has its own whistleblower provision, which is a major change. It provides for awards of up to 30% in cases where the government secures monetary sanctions of more than a million dollars. It says Treasury shall pay whistleblowers who voluntarily provide information. With this huge shift in whistleblower incentives, for it, it's going to attract plaintiffs' lawyers. And by looking at the SEC whistleblower office, it might be a good indicator of the kind of whistleblower volume that may result from AMLA 2020. In 2020, the SEC received 40,000 tips. AMLA 2020 is a significant change to money law enforcement. And anytime there's a sea change in an area of regulatory enforcement, it has the potential to make every AML BSA compliance program to be out of date. So each institution subject to the BSA and AML should really consider performing a, like a hygiene check to determine whether their program and the controls underlying it need to be adapted or enhanced because of the changes to the law. This will either provide the negative assurance that no changes are warranted or the ability to pivot quickly and make changes on their own terms. So there were three episodes that didn't really fit neatly into the, the other categories. But each of them included guests who were either currently playing in-house roles or had done so in the recent past. One episode was we had both the chief audit executive and the chief information security officer from the same company talking about how they are working in tandem. And then we also had two chief compliance officers on two other episodes on interesting topics. So starting with cybersecurity, cybersecurity risks seem to be expanding exponentially. Business email compromise schemes are among the fastest growing financial crimes. Ransomware attacks are crippling hospital systems, disrupting manufacturing and retail operations and supply chains, and threatening our critical infrastructure. Personal identifying information is being harvested millions of records at a time from consumer credit bureaus, government agencies, financial services companies, and others. And our displaced workforce has created new vulnerabilities in which the lines between network security and the softer targets comprising the many millions of home offices have forever been blurred. Cybersecurity is at the top of most organizations' list of critical risks and is often cited by C-suite executives and board members as their biggest concern. Threats this complex and amorphous require strong partnerships inside of the organization. At first glance, cybersecurity and internal audit would seem to have very little in common or little need to interact with one another. Indeed, that's probably still the case in many organizations. FTI's head of cybersecurity for the Americas, Jordan Ray Kelly, and I recently spoke with Chief Audit Executive Karen Albert and Chief Information Security Officer Stephen Davis, who've taken a different approach. Increasingly, boards and audit committees 
have been looking to internal audit to play a leading role in managing cyber risk by helping the board and the audit committee to assess digital risks and the sufficiency of the organization's efforts at mitigating cyber risk. I asked Karen to explain how she and Stephen ended up forging such a cohesive working relationship. As it turned out, Karen participated in the process of interviewing and selecting the next CISO. She took the opportunity to understand each candidate's perspective and relationship with the internal audit function at other organizations. Stephen answered those questions very well, and when he joined the company, he and Karen immediately began to work closely with one another. What helped propel that collaboration was the fact that the board and the audit committee had really required visibility and regular status updates about the cybersecurity program. Stephen and Karen explained that their partnership has really thrived because they have maintained open lines of communication that are transparent and collaborative. The two consider their partnership to be central to the success that the cybersecurity program has experienced in our organization. Internal audit is somewhat of an enigma in every organization. They're critically important partners to the business and yet must maintain independence from other parts of the organization so that they can protect their objectivity. Global awareness programs, cybersecurity training, phishing simulation exercises are all important components of an effective cyber awareness program. Chief audit executives who work in partnership with their chief information security officer counterparts are really a proven formula for improved cyber resiliency, board transparency, and an organizational culture that is aware of the rapidly changing cyber threats that pose dangers to the organization and the very important role that each of us plays in keeping those risks out. So one of the more challenging aspects of regulatory compliance is measuring return on investment. Efforts to measure return on investment on compliance expenditures have historically been in terms of the cost savings of disasters averted. During cost-cutting times such as these, many organizations will find that their CFO is likely to be unmoved by a disasters averted analysis to measure the efficacy of your compliance program. Navex Global and George Washington University published an interesting study for which Navex made a sanitized version of its trove of over 3 million hotline alerts available to George Washington University for their study on the use and efficacy of internal whistleblower systems. I discussed the results of the GWU study with two subject matter experts, Navex Global's Chief Compliance Officer, Carrie Penman, and the author of the report, GWU Assistant Professor, Kyle Welch. The study revealed a linkage between active hotlines and business performance. The study also included some surprising results. One surprising aspect of the report that larger firms handling a larger volume of hotline reporting, their reports were generally of higher quality and that just seemed counterintuitive, but perhaps the biggest surprise coming out of the study is this fact. Companies with active hotlines are involved in fewer lawsuits, pay fewer fines, and the amounts of the fines they do pay are well below those of companies with less active hotlines. In other words, organizations with active hotlines pay 20% less in legal costs than their counterparts whose hotlines are less productive. The NAVEX GWU study has shown what previously was eluding compliance officers, that effective compliance programs deliver economic benefits. Just having a hotline is not enough, though. 
but it's a step in the right direction. Employees must be aware of the hotline and the organizational culture must encourage speaking up, fiercely protect reporters' privacy, and take an unambiguous stance on retaliation in order for an organization to reap the financial benefits of lower litigation costs. So with due apologies to compliance officers who are amongst our, our audience, compliance officers are rarely popular people in their organization, even when things are in a steady state. And when it comes time to critique a member of the leadership team, it can really test the resolve of the leadership team to demonstrate their commitment to the ethics and compliance program. For the compliance officer who must deliver the message, the experience can range between uncomfortable and terrifying. I discussed strategies for critiquing organizational leadership with former Tyco and Johnson Controls Chief Compliance Officer, Matt Tanzer, who also happens to be one of my favorite people. Matt shared some advice on how compliance officers and in-house counsel can strike the right balance between carrying out their duty while not derailing their career in the process. Matt says, never swim alone. Always enlist the support before you take an action that might be controversial. Make sure the general counsel has been briefed beforehand on the issues at hand and the steps that you're about to take and make sure that you have their support. The last thing anyone would want is for their boss to be blindsided by some compliance issues affecting one of their C-suite colleagues. Make sure they've got your back before you take any action. Always be professional. Don't let emotions or power struggles interfere in the process of correcting a problem. Senior leaders are often very powerful. They're accustomed to getting their way, and they often don't respond well to being challenged. It's critical to stay calm and professional in all dealings with them and let the facts and the policies carry the day. Understand that compliance is not all powerful and that you can be beaten down pretty quickly if you're perceived to be on a power trip. Be humble, but be, maintain a dose of humility, empathy, and understanding. Everyone is human and we all make mistakes. Carry out your responsibilities with humility, but don't let yourself be steamrolled. Be insistent that the rules be followed and that compliance requirements are met. Being a compliance officer isn't for the faint of heart. Unpopularity comes with the territory. It requires the backing of senior leadership, a strong compliance program, continuous communication, and, and a willingness to deliver hard truths and withstand the backlash. This concludes this special edition of Friday's Strategy. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director with FTI Consulting. Stay tuned for the next episode. If you have an idea for a fraud or corruption topic or guest you'd like us to cover in a future episode, email us at fraudeatstrategy at fticonsulting.com. Thank you for listening. 